Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Uh, this evening I'll be reading uh, from Second uh, uh, Timothy, second chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11, uh, part of Paul's admonition to Timothy to share with the brethren that he was going to be with, starting in verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the run of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. About every eight weeks, we have a Sunday night when we do Q&A, and I always enjoy it. We always have lots of questions, and so for those of you who submitted them, I want to thank you for participating. and. Let's get to it. Here's the first one. If you're about to be baptized, but then unexpectedly die, would you go to heaven? The first, this is different tiers. Now, the first tier is, I want you to know that I'll be happy with whoever Christ decides can come into heaven. I'm going to be pleased with that. Uh, that, That's really his business. Having said that, here's the second tier, is that uh, what we have to do is pay attention to Scripture. I, I, had, I read an article one time about a, a man who had a terrible car accident which robbed him of his life and occurred on the way to his wedding. That's, that's very sad. But the article was to ask the question about his fiancée. Do you suppose that she could wear that man's name? Could she wear his name? Could she change her last name to his last name? Could she claim inheritance? And you could go on down the line, I suppose, with questions, and of course the answers to those are no. The the fact is that the New Testament teaches that baptism is essential for salvation. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. You are not saved until you come up out of the waters of baptism. Now that's what Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 3 and following says. And I I think this is an interesting question and I'm sure it was asked in sincerity. But I I suppose we, we could ask other questions that would be just as good. Acts 2 and 38 says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. Suppose we ask this question. 
if a man was just about to repent of his sins, about to make that decision, and he died, would his sins be forgiven? Suppose he was, suppose he was uh, just about to hear the gospel. I mean, he had a friend who was a Christian. They set up an appointment to study the Bible and learn how to become a Christian. And it was going to be tomorrow about lunchtime. But on the way, he died. He'd be saved, would he? I just think these are equally valid questions. And the point is that the Bible being the truth, it is the lamp to our feet, the light unto our path. The Bible teaches the necessity of baptism for being saved. I know that lots of people disagree with that, but the Bible is pretty tenacious about it and just keeps on saying it. Number next. This has to do with 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. And the question is, if we who are in Christ don't rise up until Christ comes back on the judgment day, then where are all the souls right now? It's a very interesting question. And here's, here's what the text says. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. This is at the judgment day. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Now that's, how the, that's where the question came from. If you just read this passage, I can understand how you'd ask this question. The dead in Christ will rise first. Well, well where have their souls been? And, and why, are they sleeping, I guess, maybe? Are they sleeping in their graves, and sometimes we talk about the dead slumbering in their graves. But the fact is that this passage, as important as it is, and I'm going to finish it, doesn't give you all the information. Some other passages uh, have a bearing on the question. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Incidentally, the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus will ever set foot on this earth again. What this says is we're going to meet him in the air. That's another discussion. Let me give you two or three other passages which have a bearing on the question. The question is, so if the dead in Christ rise first, then up until that time, where are their souls? And are, you know, so are they in the ground with, with the body? Here's some just basic principles about this from Scripture. Here's the first one. Death is the separation of the body from the soul. James 2 and 26 says, the body without the spirit is dead. What's death? Death, you can just say, a synonym for death is separation. Body without the spirit is dead. So when your body is no longer a suitable house for your soul, however that comes about, that's death. And we bury the body and it decays. But now listen to Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. Ready? But the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So there's that separation again. And it also teaches us, indicates that the soul is going to take its leave. It won't be, today, you know, we, we buried the body of, of Doris Nichols and this afternoon. But I can assure you her soul was not there. We did not bury her soul. This passage says... The dust will return to the earth as it was, but the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Now, it appears to to me, and I think a casual reading of the text, that, that there's an intermediate state to which the souls go upon death. That's not heaven or hell. 
nor purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach purgatory, but there is apparently an intermediate state called the Hadean realm. It has a place of bliss and a place of torment, paradise and Tartarus. In Luke chapter 16, you have the discussion of two men who died, and one went to a place of bliss, the other went to a place of torment. But now here's what I think is really an impressive observation uh, from Scripture about this question. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross, and you remember what he said about paradise? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So Jesus died. His soul took leave of his body. Where did it go? Well, I know exactly where it went. It went to paradise. And maybe we would raise the question, so does that mean that Jesus went to heaven to be with the Father? Oh, no. No, he did not. Because when he was uh, on the first day of the week on that Sunday, he talked to Mary Magdalene. And he said, I don't want you to touch me because I, remember why? Because I haven't yet ascended to my father. Okay, put the pieces, connect the dots, put the pieces together. So where did he go when he died? And the answer is he went to paradise. Paradise sounds wonderful to me. I'd love to go. But it's different from heaven. Different from heaven. I would, I would argue that, that where Lazarus went to in Luke 16 was paradise. An intermediate state, a, it's called the Hadean realm. And um, there's a place of bliss there and a place of torment there. And Jesus said, he, went to, he said, I'm going to go to paradise. But he hadn't yet ascended to his father. Where is his father? Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1 and following says that the, that the father is in heaven and that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God. So there's, there's that answer. I want, to, I want to take just a minute and read a passage to you now. Uh, before I finish this question. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in 35. It's about this subject, and it's just a beautiful passage. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. I learned this when I was in second grade. We took some styrofoam cups, and we put some soil in there, and we planted bean seeds. And, and then we learned. And we would take up the seeds. The teacher would pull some out in the process to show us what they look like. Listen. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him. It's a seed. And to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are celestial bodies, heavenly bodies. There are terrestrial bodies, earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. One star differs from another star in glory. You see, I just saw these illustrations about different bodies, different bodies of some things. And then he's drawing the conclusion. Here's the point. So is the resurrection of the dead. Listen closely. The body is sown in corruption. That, That body has died. That person has died. And sometimes what we bury in the ground has, has been 
highly diseased. And it's awful. It is simply awful. And you and I have known of times like that. The body is sown in corruption. It's sown in death. But listen now. But it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. That is, the, the body has, has no longer, is no longer a suitable house for the soul. That's death. It's sown. We, we bury that body in dishonor, therefore. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's a spiritual body. See, what it is is something that you, you, you don't know about. You, can't, you and I cannot see this. We understand the physical body. We understand something about death. But I haven't seen the spiritual body. So read on. And so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, Jesus. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, our human bodies. And afterward, the spiritual, our spiritual bodies. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. Second man is the Lord Jesus, from, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also the bear the, will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. We will bear his image. We will be like him. We will have a body like his. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's important. That's important. Okay, now, so I'll bring this back up, but this says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot assume a place in heaven. Flesh and blood, people, this body is not suitable for heaven. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Corruption means you're, you're, you're getting older and, and your body will one day fail. It's a corruptible body. But your next body, when you go to glory, is going to be incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is the judgment day, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This corruptible man, corruptible is subject to decay, this corruptible man was put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. We're going to get a new body. There's going to be a different body. It's not mortal. It's not corruptible. It is immortal. It is incorruptible. So that when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. All right. Now, here's one more thing. When the trumpet blows for the last great day, the graves are going to be open. What is there is, is uh, not our soul. What is there will be our corruptible physical body. When you connect these together, what you have is this is that the soul takes its leave at death, but it will be reunited with the body on that day. Again, John chapter 
20 and verse 17. No, that's not the one I wanted. All that are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. This is, isn't it John chapter 5 and verse 28? All that are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So again, put it together. And what happens is that at the judgment day, the bodies are raised. Then they're changed to be not corruptible, but incorruptible. And that's how that's going to work. Now that raises one more question to me. And, and that is why? And, and it's just, why? why? Why would he need this old physical body? And some of them have been, have been reduced to dust for, for centuries. Why put it all back together again in order to, to reunite it with the soul and then change that body into an incorruptible eternal body that's suitable for heaven? Why would he go to that trouble? I don't know the answer to that. I, my speculation is that as part of that sermon this morning, there's so many things he does to just make me grasp it and grasp it in this case would be it's going to be me. I'm still going to be me. I'm going to have a different body. My body's going to be changed, but it's still going to be Glenn. It's still going to be me. Otherwise, why would I care how I live my life? Why would I care if I go to heaven or hell? But it's going to be me, and, and that soul of mine is going to be reunited temporarily with my body. The body's going to be changed, and, and I'll be suitable then for heaven. And that is the answer, at least the best one I can, I can find when you take all the evidence from the various different scriptures. Number next, are there any scriptures or biblical examples of disfellowshipping from a family member because their lifestyle is sinful? This person was once in Christ and repentance is the goal, but how long should, should we tolerate this? this? This could affect other family members, including innocent children and meals and gatherings and etc. Trying to make a decision to please God and this person is lost. This has been going on for many years and no signs of changing at the moment. Now here's, here's the point that I want to give you, is that there is a natural separation that occurs among Christians, related or not, because of sin. When sin starts taking over a person's life, when he or she starts giving permission to Satan to lead them in the wrong direction, they're living sinful lives. It's just going to have a natural separating effect. You're going to have, Christians are going to have less and less in common with them. It's going to become more difficult, like the question says, for parents to have their children around that person, no matter how much you love them. It sins like that. It separates. And so there you have a natural, I would say, disfellowshipping that will occur. <laughs> now here's the second thing you got to get, is that the scriptures that specify how we're to treat people from whom we've withdrawn ourselves are always about, to my knowledge, are always about a church action and not a private action. And what kinds of things do you think about? What kinds of things come to you? Well, you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, now when the church comes together, and here's one who's living with a woman to whom he's not married. It's just an interesting illustration, a, a, a case. And, and uh, he says, when you're come together, church, 
with my spirit, he says, I want you to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then get down to the lower part of the chapter, and he says, with this person, when you've withdrawn fellowship from them, do not eat with this person. We take that to mean, and I believe it's right, that we, that we cease uh, social interaction. I'm not going to say to that brother, why don't we go play golf together? Not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And we're not going to say, I'm not going to say, you want to go get a pizza. I'm just not going to do it because this verse means something. And it's about withdrawing ourselves. Our conversation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're not going to treat him as an enemy, but we're going to admonish him as a brother. And so our conversation now is going to be diminished down to my encouraging him. You know that we miss you. You know that we love you. What can I do? How can I help you? We want you back. We want you back in the Lord's church. Come on back. But, but I'm not going to say, want to go get a Coke because our relationship is different. Now, hold. The, here's the point. Let me, let me try to land the plane on this one. So there is a church action taught in Scripture in passages like 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, to withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and etc., There's an action of the church that involves these specifics. I do not believe that it's right to take these specifics intended for a church action and apply them to a private action. Imagine a congregation where individuals were withdrawing themselves from other individuals. I really doubt the the prudence of that. I think it would be very divisive. It needs to be, that's something that needs to be led by the elders of the church. It needs to be something that the church, if this person's really living in sin, even if it's a sin against an individual, you know, you got Matthew chapter 18. Go to him between and privately and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then ultimately, if he won't repent, you tell it to the church and the church then withdraws fellowship from him. Matthew 18. It's a church function. Do I think that sometimes privately we segregate? The answer is yes. And I would say that's a natural thing that's going to happen. And maybe, you know, you'd have to make deliberate decisions. I just don't think it's right to take those verses, like 1 Corinthians 5, that are written to the church as a whole and say, I'm going to bind that passage onto a private action. And so there's the answer. All right, here's the next one. Why is poor in spirit in Matthew 5 and verse 3, but only poor in Luke 6 and verse 20? Is there a difference? That's a great question. Are you aware of the fact that that you have two similar sermons from Jesus? Uh, One, of course, in Matthew 5, it starts with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But in Luke chapter 6, you have a very similar sermon. And, and, it, and, of course, people read those and they just assume it was two different gospel writers and they're writing about the same sermon. It's not the same sermon. And you don't have to get very far into the dialogue, the, 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 the discussion there, before you realize it. In Matthew 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount. You get to Luke 6, and it's the Sermon on the Plain. It is true that you find here, then, this distinction, blessed are the poor in spirit, having to do with the humility of heart that we have. Everything I've got came from God. Come on now, I ain't got anything. Everything I've got is because God's blessed me with it. That's poor in spirit. To see myself as I really am, I, 
I have really, I have nothing, I have nothing to recommend myself to God. I need everything. I belong to him and whatever blessing he's given me, I got from him and I credit him for it. That's poor in spirit. The word over in Luke 6 seems to be poor. Poor. Now, I, I, would, I would make this observation. That appears to be poor in things of this world, rich in faith. And so, without going any farther about the teaching, I would just suggest that, that Jesus is teaching similar, a similar sermon in two different places at two different times. And he made variations in those sermons. Uh, you may not be surprised to know that we plain old human preachers sometimes do that too. Next, is it appropriate for the congregation to request contributions in media where non-members might see it, like TV commercials or the church bulletin? Well, no, no. Uh, I mentioned this this morning before we had our contribution, that Scripture binds the financial support of carrying out the duty of the church on the church. The church is the one that's responsible for all of these efforts, not unbelievers. You don't ask unbelievers to financially support the teaching that we're trying to do for them. They don't have to pay for the teaching. We'll, we'll take care of that, right? That's the point. We'll take care of that. And the work of the church is just that. And it is funded by the church, by free will offerings. And, and the children will tell you that 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 is a great example of that. So, um, I, I'm not sure where the question is coming from. Uh, it is possible that some, some article or some note about your contributions should be handled this way or you could do it through this different avenue or, or whatever and that somebody who's an unbeliever might pick that up and might contribute. I think it's just as possible as it is that somebody might be in our assembly, not a Christian, but just come by to see what we're doing. And that'd be terrific and it happens. And maybe when the plates pass, they put some money in it. The, the, the important thing is that we won't solicit those funds. We, in no way do we solicit those funds. It is, it is inappropriate to ask for money from people who are not members of the body of Christ. When they become Christians, then they'll have a, an obligation from Scripture to be part of this work financially. This is an interesting question, and it's about, it's about immodest dress. And, and from time to time, from this pulpit, and classes for our teens, classes for the adults, there will be some discussion about what is appropriate and inappropriate dress for somebody who professes Christianity. And when the weather gets hot, People, people around us are taking off their, more and more of their clothes in public, and, and they're, they're immodestly dressed. And the question is this, shouldn't the elders create a dress code for the church? I thought that was a very interesting question. And it, my, my reaction is that they, they already have. They, they already have. I mean... What, what, what should they do? Should they draw up, draw up maybe some posters in which they specify? I mean, those. Cause the answer is that, that, that what's being preached from this pulpit on this subject is that. 
And we talk about the passages. We talk about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Matthew 5 and 28 and some specifics about what would be appropriate, not appropriate for dress. And 1 Peter chapter 5 says the responsibility of the elders is to feed the flock. So when I'm preaching, it's, it's an arm of the eldership too. It's an exercise of the eldership who put me in this pulpit. And I'm thankful to be in it. When our teachers teach the classes, that's, that's an exercise from the guidance of those who are charged to feed the church of God, which is among them. And that's the elders. And so could they, could they draw up some sort of a document and say, this would be the dress code for this church? Mm, I suppose they could. But in their wisdom and a decision not to do something that would appear perhaps to be heavy-handed... What they do is to maintain a pulpit that will talk about these things and offer the specifics and logic and scriptures and reason through it that way. Good, good question. You know what? Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to do one more. I, I've got uh, this uh, funny feeling that that clock that I've been relying on today is utterly wrong. In fact, it's utterly stopped. No, no, that could be a good thing. Let's do this one. If I don't get to your question, then I'll save it. I won't throw it away. I'll save it, and we'll work on it next time. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Romans 8, 28, and Colossians 3, 10 all speak of the image of Christ. I'm going to read those passages to you. Uh, The question is, would you please explain how this happens or will happen in in the here and now and in eternity? How do we become his image now and in eternity? That's a good question to end on. Let me just read the passages. Here's 1 Corinthians 15, 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. We talked about this a while ago. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made, made of dust. Second man is... The Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. He's talking about how we have two bodies, the physical one, and then we're going to have the spiritual one fit for heaven. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. He's comparing Adam and Christ and I I was born into this world after the image of Adam, but I'm going to leave here and our eternal body, my eternal body is going to be changed. And the Bible says that we're going to to see him as he is. 1 John 3 and verse 1, we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him in his image. Here's 2 Corinthians 3.12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of of the Old Testament, because the veil was taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Listen closely. This is why we're here on this earth. Being transformed, are being transformed into the same image 
from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The word, uh, the word Greek, Greek word for, for image, I think is pretty much what you think. It's likeness, representation, resemblance. It is in his image. What I want to show you is that you have two different considerations here. And there's a sense that in this life, in my earthly life, I strive every day to be in the image of Christ. That doesn't mean I have that second body yet. I, I don't. That body of the second Adam, of Jesus. I don't have that heavenly body yet. I'm still on this earth in this old mortal body. But I, but I am working every day to conform my thoughts to him, to think like he thinks, to value what he values, to hold what he holds to. <clears throat> and that's being conformed to the image of Christ. And one day when I die, I'm going to go to glory and I will, and I will have a different body and that will be conformed to the image of Christ too only. It'll be in a different sense. Romans 8, 29, for whom he foresaw, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The Greek word for conformed means having the same form as another conformed to. Colossians 3, 8, but now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you've put off the old man with its deeds and you've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so there you have it. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. See, we're, we're his image. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he's revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself, just as he, Jesus, is pure. There's his image. We're conformed to his image. And Second Corinthians 10 and verse 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How about that? There it is. I am to conform to his image in my life as I live here. And one day, I'm going to be in his image in a unique way in glory because I'm going to be changed and I'll be made fit for heaven. I'm so glad that you've come tonight and I hope you'll have a great week and I'll, uh, I'll take up the rest of these questions when we resume in just a few weeks. There's someone here who wants to obey the gospel. Becoming a Christian is, well, a commitment. And, and when you're baptized, the Bible says you're saved at that point, but it's only a beginning. What you're going to be doing is conforming yourself to the image of Jesus Christ. It means that you're going to, to work every day to think like he thinks, to be what he wants us to be. And maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you've made a decision. Tonight will be a great night and we'll be so happy to baptize you into Christ. 
If you need the prayers of the Christians, we're here for you and we'll be so happy to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.